A History of Live Sound with Chris Sam. This week's guest is a name that will be familiar to those in the theatre world. It's Abe Jacob. Abe is often referred to as the godfather of Broadway sound. Whilst rudimentary forms of amplification existed in theatre for several years, he introduced rapid improvements in technology. These opened new ways of using sound in theatre that had not been done before. This was around the time of the rock musical, a show that could not have existed without amplification. And all of this was his second act. Abe's technical knowledge came from his first act. He was one of the sound crew at the Beatles' last show in Candlestick Park in San Francisco and went on to be the live sound engineer for the Mamas and the Papas, Peter, Paul and Mary and Jimi Hendrix. Here's how it happened. Well, how did I get started? Mm. I was a child actor here in my hometown of Tucson, Arizona. Uh, My first solo acting role was in a play called The Princess and Mrs. Parker, Uh, at the age of eight. Then I was a walk-on in a Ronald Reagan Western movie, and then I did the role of Tad Lincoln and Abe Lincoln in Illinois at the University of Arizona. Uh, I retired from the stage at eight. So I thought of becoming a a pianist. I I took lessons, but never wanted to practice, and soon realized that I would never be very good. (laughs) But music took hold, and I did everything I could in school to do everything I could without having to perform. So while in high school, I worked for a sound company in San Francisco uh, called McCune Sound and continued with the, on with them part-time through college. The uh, uh, was, uh, doing on uh, was doing a lot of uh, the West Coast sound uh, that Bill Hanley was doing uh, on the East Coast. We never really did stadium sound while I was there, but mm. uh, uh, until after college in August of 1966, having graduated, I went back to San Francisco and was put to work on the sound crew for an outdoor concert in a stadium. Uh, little did we know that this would be the famous last concert of the Beatles at Candlestick Park. So was it just another concert to you? Was it, it was just another another, another concert, yes. Wow. Um, I had I'd seen the Beatles once before uh, when they played at uh, the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles while I was in school, but uh, I, we, we put up A7500s and... Uh, Altec multicellular horns around the baselines of the ballpark, and uh, that was it. Of course, nobody ever heard any of the things that they were singing because the crowd cheers were much, much louder than everything. And as a matter of fact, I remember uh, when Ringo did his sang his solo, uh, he swung the boom mic around and sang into the weight at the end instead of the microphone. But it really <laughs> didn't make very much difference. But from then on until 1971, I was on the road doing concert sound. Uh, first for the Mamas and the Papas. Uh, I met them uh, because of a college connection in Los Angeles with Lou Adler, who was their producer and, and, and manager, and stayed with them for a, for a while until uh, uh, they finally retired. They only did a few performances, but they were brilliant. But because of uh, my gig with the Mamas and Papas, and since they were producing it, uh, we did sound for the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. Uh, It was there that I first met Jimi Hendrix at his first performance, uh, Has the Experience in the United States. When he decided to go out on tour, his management remembered me for Monterey. And since the Mamas and Papas were no longer performing, I was able to tour with him and continued until his unfortunate death in September of 1970. Right after Monterey. So, uh, I was just going to say, at, at that time, was it quite a rare thing to be a touring sound engineer then? Were you w- one of two people in the world doing this, or was this a... No, uh, there was actually Bill Hanley uh, on the east coast of the United States. Uh, after he did the sound for Woodstock, it was very, very busy uh, during tours on, on the east coast, uh, up and down the east coast. And Stan Miller of Stan L Sound... Uh, in the Midwest was on tour, and then Harry McKeon Jr. Um, was doing people like Burt Bacharach and uh, Herb Alpert and uh, Sergio Mendez and those sorts of things. But mm. those were the three people basically were doing sound. Uh, touring groups in those days relied on the local promo- local promoter to provide uh, the sound equipment at the wherever they were playing. 
while with Jimmy, I met uh, Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary, who were looking for a new sound engineer. And in between Hendrix dates, I went around the world with the trio from 1968 until they took their final retirement in, or their first retirement in 1971. We did a nice gig at the Albert Hall, I remember, uh, <laughs> with them back in 1969 or 70. In the off time, I went back to San Francisco and continued to put together sound systems for Bay Area theaters. And through Peter of Peter, Paul, and Mary, I met Michael Butler, who was producing a show called Hair. Uh, he thought the sound could be better on Broadway and asked me to come listen and see what could be done. I did and then went on to design 10 productions of Hair uh, throughout the world. There's an interesting connection there because Phil Dudridge, who started Soundcraft, yes. was working on the London production of Hair, I believe. Back, mm -hmm. in, back at the Roundhouse in the late, maybe 69. Yeah, I, I, I didn't, I had nothing to do with that one, but uh, <laughs> um, uh, it, I think, I believe Jim Sharman was the director of that, and Jim Sharman went on, of course, became a close friend of mine, and we did the Rocky Horror Show together uh -huh. with, with Tim Curry, so uh, he directed that and opened in Los Angeles again for Lou Adler. Um but in 1972, while visiting New York City, I stopped in to visit friends for a preview of the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. The first two previews had been canceled because of technical problems. And then when Tom O'Horgan, who directed it, saw me and asked if I could help, I said yes, and I've been in New York until I retired in October of 2016. Wow. I was hesitant about leaving a full-time job in San Francisco, but when Mike Jeffries, Hendrix's uh, manager, called and asked if I would be interested in managing Electric Lady Studios, I knew I had the security of a job in case this theater thing didn't work out. And so I moved back to New York and, and stayed there. And I only stayed at Electric Lady Studios for about six months and Broadway called and I was really busy doing the shows. Mm. Pippin in 1972 with Bob Fosse was my first design from scratch. And I was uh, fortunate to be able to do the rest of Fosse's uh, other original productions, Chicago, Dancing, and Big Deal. And during the out-of-town tryout of Chicago, I received a call from the director, Michael Bennett, who I'd met in 1974 while doing his road company of Seesaw. He said they were doing a workshop presentation at the public theater, and could I come and help with sound? So in April of 1975, 45 years ago, I was going between Philadelphia and New York City, between Michael Bennett and Bob Fosse, between Chicago and a chorus line. Dealing with those two brilliant men of the theater was uh, difficult, but they were the most interesting times of my theatrical career. Mm. It's hard to pick out a favorite show, but it's my feeling is that the show you're doing at the time is your favorite. But looking back over the past, certainly a chorus line stands out. It was done without wireless microphones. Everything was area micing, choreography coordinated to put people in a place where they could be heard. It was a concept musical that certainly embodied what the life of the theater was all about. Mm -hmm. And certainly that was a special time. At, at this time, because the, yes. because the technology was moving very fast and people were starting to build new products for sound, were things developing very quickly on Broadway for that? Or were people adopting the new technology very quickly, or was it a slow process? It, 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 it took a while. Uh, when I started in 71 doing sound for Broadway, it was basically still the old Altec systems that we'd always used, uh, even-tied delays, Altec multicellular horns and bass boxes, crown amplifiers. And this was before John, Meyer, of course, back at McEwen's, we worked with John Meyer, and he left and went to develop Meyer Sound. So basically, the first thing I did when I started doing Broadway was, up until that time, the sound operator was part of the electric crew, and we worked from backstage uh -huh. and had a mixer on the light board and uh, turned it on when he came into the theater and turned it off when he went home with preset levels on, on, on the round faders. I said, no, the, the sound operator has to hear what the... Uh, audience is hearing. So that was the first, I think, and, and probably the most important contribution in those early days. Yeah. But it was all it was all really uh, uh, very, very basic. Sound-wise, uh, the musical Beatlemania was, was a challenge. It played mm -hmm. here in New York, and it also played in the UK. And it was a challenge because McCartney and, and George Martin saw it at various times. Uh, even though they may have expressed reservations about the content of the show, they did say it sounded remarkably like their recordings. 
and, and to me that was certainly high praise. Uh, creating the Sgt. Pepper concept album live on stage was immense challenge at the time, but I think we did it quite well. It certainly would have been easier with today's technology. And it was because in the 2010, uh, we recreated the Beatlemania sound with the tribute show Rain on Broadway. It was a lot easier the second time around. <laughs> and then again in uh, 2012, I believe it was, or 13, Paul McCartney came to New York City Ballet, where I was the resident sound designer, and uh, had written a ballet, a score for a ballet. Uh, so I got to record with uh, with him at uh, at the theater and uh, got to say hello again. <laughs> when we were when we were introduced, they said, "This is Abe Jacob," and he said, "It was nice to meet you." And I said, "Well, actually, uh, Sir Paul, we we met once before, 1966, Candlestick Park. I was your sound <laughs> operator." And he said, "Oh, well, it's, I guess it's I, I guess it's about time we work together again, then, isn't it?" <laughs> so now we can talk a little bit about um, how, how sound got to be so important, and oh, uh, especially in the theater. Yes. Uh, before, before there were radio, movies, television, records, home hi-fis, compact discs, or internet downloads, people went to a place of performance, uh, the auditorium, to hear and experience the magic of live performance. Today you can download songs from a yet unproduced musical, listen to it on earbuds, and then at some future date, go to the theater and have us recreate the magic you experienced in your head. This certainly has changed in recent years, and much of the change is the basis for what audience hears as a reference is no longer their imagination, but rather what they have heard sampled and stored and then reproduced by artificial means, whether it be CD, DVDs, motion picture sound, downloads, whatever. All that has contributed to the fact that increasingly our perception of what... Uh, something sounds like is no longer from our own experience, but rather from someone else's. Whether that's good or bad, I'm, I'm not sure, but it is what it is. So when you go to the theater, the cinema, the concert hall, what audience expects is a sound they've heard previous via mechanical reproduction than a sound they've heard previously live. In the old days, someone would shake a sheet of metal to make a thunder sound, and our imagination would fill in the rest. Now audiences expect more, something like the real thing. It's quite profound, that, really. <laughs> uh... That's, uh, you know, uh, that, that, that's what it was. It, yeah. it, 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 we, you know, you used to go and spend $4 to see a musical on Broadway, and you couldn't really quite hear, but you experienced it with the rest of the audience. Mm. And that was the important experience. Um, now, it, uh, it, you know, modern microphones and loudspeaker systems are extremely linear and capable of providing reinforcement with minimal detection. Certain DSP technology gives us the ability to track actors on cue and other subtle manipulations that expand the artistic range open to actors. So we have now become what I call the invisible sound system, and that's, I think, the, the absolute desire. It's not quite the same thing in the concert world. Uh, the louder and the more bombastic it becomes, uh, it, it certainly is the desire. When I was traveling with, with Hendrix, all of the band gear, the sound system, the musical instruments, uh, and a couple of special lights all fit in a 19-foot um, U-Haul truck. Uh, that was driven, um, you know, across the, the country to do his gigs. Uh, that led to the Abe Jacob corollary that the amount of talent of the band is inversely proportional to the number of trucks it takes to move the, <laughs> the group. Uh, Hendrix, one 19-foot truck, uh, a popular modern female recording star, 40 trucks. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it, a, it's, it's, a, a, it's a little different. Of course, part of the trucks are not just equipment. They're the, the wardrobe, there's the massage room, there's the uh, manager's office and all of those things. So, um, how was our time? Um, oh, we're, we're looking pretty good. So. As uh, Daniel was asking me when I'm going to write a book, and I said, my life is an open pamphlet. <laughs> uh, not, enough for, not enough for a book. So, back in the early days... When you started getting involved in sound at school and being interested in sound, was it a very new technology that was sort of like some sort of witchcraft, or was it, or was it quite an old technology that was that had just stayed the same since the nineteen thirties, maybe? Or uh, 
this was the, uh, the the late 50s, early 60s. Sound was basically a, uh, a, a PA system, you know, a public address, and it mm -hmm. was not considered anything other than amplifying voices so they could be heard. And so when I went to McCune's in high school to uh, rent equipment for the high school productions, it was basically five uh, microphones on floor stands across the front of the stage for float mics, uh, as you say in the UK, foot mics we call them here, uh, a pair of speakers on either side of the stage, and a, and a small Altec four-channel mixer, uh, or two small four-channel mixers to, to mix the sound. It was very basic. It was not much more than uh, what they would have in the high school uh, gymnasium for a, an announcer at a basketball game. It stayed pretty much that way through the early 60s when people like McCune's started building their own mixing desks with a man named uh, Nolan Bushnell, uh, who built the op amps that went into the boards. He later became famous for, for starting a company called Atari and made Pong the, uh, the, 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 the game. And then John Meyer, of course, worked at McCune's and developed his new loudspeakers, which was originally called the JM3, which I used on Superstar and Evita in London. Uh, they weren't too happy with bringing those large speakers over, but we did. And so that really developed new speaker technology, which improved the quality of sound significantly. And then it was in 84, the, on Cats in London, that uh, uh, we used the uh, new development, the UPA from Meyer Sound, which became a, pretty much of a standard throughout uh, the theater industry. An interesting story, if you, if you don't mind, is that yeah. uh, John's first commercial product at Meyer Sound uh, was the uh, Ultra Monitor, which he built for the Grateful Dead. Uh -huh. And it was a slope front cabinet that had uh, a 12-inch and a horn in it. And it sounded terrific, but it was in an awkward-shaped box because it was meant to go in the front of the stage. So I asked him if he could take that, if that box could be built in such a way that I could hang it on either side of the proscenium arch. And he thought about it for a while and came up with the UPA, which was the same internal the devices, but uh, in a, a trapezoidal box, which fit on either side of the proscenium. Ah. And um, that was one of the star major starts of, of Meyer Sound, and I, I like, do like to take some credit for that. Maybe. that I've always wondered why you was before the, uh, some of their products. As in, you know, UPJ, UPA, UPA. Yeah, yeah, so maybe it's well, the uh, Ultra Monitor, perhaps. Ultramar, yeah. Well, I always thought the UPA was going to be UPABE. Uh, I thought that's what he would call it. But then I realized that if you just sp spread it out a little, it'd be up Abe, and that wouldn't be too, too, too good. So. <laughs> now that you had good quality speakers, at, at what point did you start to be able to put delay lines in place and be able to have distributed yeah. audio in the room? We did that in probably '75 uh, with uh, with a chorus line. And these were simple delay systems made by um, Eventide, which was a fixed set of, of delay times, not really very accurate. But we were able to put speakers back in the hall so we didn't have to uh, have quite so much power coming from the front of the stage to, again, make it seem more natural and coming from the performer. Early digital delays before that were actually tape loop systems where you had multiple playback heads and the, the distance from the record to the playback head set the amount of delay time you would have. Uh, it was very noisy and they're certainly not very good. And I, I was corrected a long time ago by a professional audio engineer who said it's not time delay, it's signal delay because if you could delay time, you wouldn't need to be in this business. You could have, you can name your price anywhere. Uh, you're, you're delaying signal, you're not delaying time. I thought that was probably very true. Um, equalizers were third octave graphics. Um, again made by Altec Lansing, and spring reverb devices were from uh, Master Room, and then EMT made a digital device a little later on. And then mixing desks. Um, Yamaha started making the PM1000s. Trident in uh, in the UK, Soundcraft, the Fleximix was, was a big desk. I was with the uh, Midas people from, from Cats, and uh, Bob Doyle from there uh, went on to uh, uh, go to a company called Digico, which uh, is now doing a majority of the mixing desks uh, in the theater on the in the West End and on Broadway. So, 
you're quite well known as well for um I, I I don't know whether it's it's too grand to say the introduction of radio mics to theater but no there radio that. radio mics were in use uh, in the in the in the 50s they were very large clumsy boxes uh with a very large microphone element uh but they were used primarily only for the star of the show mm-hmm. uh Carol Channing and Hello Dolly uh and, and that was it one one microphone the balance was not great but that was how it started we did a veto with seven wireless mics, radio mics, uh, eventually, and then everybody ended up having them when we when we toured. The reason I got into Jesus Christ Superstar was that they had brought over wireless microphones made by radio mics. They're from the UK, I think that was the name of them, and obviously they weren't working. They were picking up taxi cabs uh, signals in the, on the street and various things like that. So that was the reason that they had to cancel their first two performances because none of the radio mics would be working. So when I came in, the first thing I did was get rid of them because I thought uh, we did hair with wired SM50. We could do the same here in a quick amount of time. So the director and the choreographer got together and we put microphones on either side of the stage and upstage center and they used those and and we gave them a show uh, two days later. Robin Wagner, a friend of mine and the set designer, was very nice to take and wrap plastic vine leaves around the cords of the microphones so it looked like they were in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, (laughs) And and that's how you do things in in, in those Mm. days. I had originally intended to use Neumann KMS-85s, I think they were. They were a a large condenser mic made by Neumann, and it looked like a a Nazi uh, hand grenade. It had a long thing with with a round uh, windscreens along the side of it. And it was basically a a, a condenser mic inside this special windscreen housing, and then slip connectors on the microphone to go to the external XLR. Mm. They they sounded great, but they were not very rugged, obviously, and so as they were passing around on stage, the slip would fall off. So I called the distributor in New York, Gotham Audio, and uh, spoke to the head of that company, and I explained to him my problem, that the microphones were dropping out because they were being you know passed back and forth, and uh, sometimes they got dropped and that's what they would slip out. And he, in his very haughty German accent, said, if you're going to drop the microphone, use ElectroVoice. <laughs> <laughs> and so we went to Shure instead, but that's... Uh, um, <laughs> you wanted some stories, I think. That, this, this, is, this, is, this is great. I love it. I think the future of sound, it, there's a design, the technology, and its accessibility has never been more exciting. Um, the barriers that once separated audio professionals from consumers are blurring. Binaural recording, spatialization, localization, psychoacoustics, and mobile 3D audio will, I think, drive this new phase. Uh, companies like Google and Oculus are paving the way for a new generation of audio designers and, and users. Designers will have a new set of tools at their disposal, the smartphone and virtual reality terminals like the one I think we're using for this. Um, I'm especially excited about a company called Hook Audio. I don't know if you, you've heard them, but... It stands out for me as a, in the forefront of bringing professional recording technology to the general public. It's a, um, when we rely on software to interpret the way audio might sound, Hook is transforming our ears from a listening device to a recording one through hardware, headphones to be exact. Uh, Hook Audio is attempting what many have tried and failed to consumerize binaural recording technology and bringing recording and audio back into the, uh, Zeitgeist, well done to them. It's a device that goes into your iPhone. The microphones are built into the earbuds, so they stimulate what the ears would hear. And it's a totally perfect binaural recording recorded to your iPhone, and then it could be played back over any system through that device. I think it's a it's an interesting device, and the quality is, is actually quite good. I did an acoustics degree, and we met up with some people who were looking at 3D audio for virtual reality situations mm-hmm. and a, a binaural recording is fine but when you try to place a sound within that soundscape it depends on the user's ear because everyone has a slightly different shaped ear and mm-hmm. so the delay cues and the directional cues are different per person and one of their arguments is that eventually the the key to excellent 3d spatial audio 
is to have people have a, a fingerprint of their ear, an earprint, as it were. Ah. And you apply that to the sound, like a convolution process, mm-hmm. and then it's perfectly suited to your ear. Uh, the localization. Well, that's what these do because it's using your ears, and ah. it, uh, uh, it you and you move your head, it it moves with you. So that sound is always centered uh, somewhere between the side of your ears and the middle of your brain. Brilliant. H double O K E is uh, it's spelled. Excellent. I've written it down. One thing that interests me is that when you look at old mixing desks, sort of WEM, Audio Master, your sort of Altec four-channel mm-hmm. mixers, did they take a balanced line? And, and they didn't have Phantom for a while, I, I imagine. No. Uh, the original early mixers that we had here, the Altec four-channel 1567 and the Shure M67 were basically four microphone inputs, a line-level input, and a simple bass and treble a control for tone and a master fader for the output, and that's what we use. That's I used uh, two of them for Hendrix, three of them for the Mamas and Papas, and um, six of them for the original Broadway production of Pippin, uh, which was before mixing desks came into the line. But we were able to uh, parallel the outputs into a line level combining device, and, and one output would feed the mains, and the other output would feed stage monitors. So it was really. Trident, I think, in in the UK, and Soundcraft about the same time. Stevenson and Yamaha here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then McCune started making their own proprietary uh, mixing desks, which we then used quite a bit. And in in those days, it was as much of the job chasing hiss and and noise floor and, and earth hums, or was the equipment quite reliable once once you'd found the right piece of equipment well it was there i mean you, you didn't you didn't have that much inserted in the various lines it was strictly microphone in line level out amplifier uh to loudspeakers so it was uh, a little bit easier than uh than it is today with all of the various you know plug-in devices that you need to have for a, to do a sound system today mm-hmm. And I guess we never really considered the fact that uh, the noise floor was was such. Um, the crowds in, in, in rock and roll usually took care of that. It got to be really necessary in the in the theater world mm-hmm. that we were we were quiet. But I was always told you put your loudspeakers up first and make sure that that's all working uh, with your amplifiers because if your mixer goes out, you can bring another little mixer in to do it. But if your loudspeakers aren't working, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> so, And when you were testing a system in those days, so you say you, you turned up and the speakers were built and said, right, I'm going to check if this system is operating as, as well as I'd like it to. Did you get someone to speak into a microphone for 20 minutes while you checked every driver, or did you play a, a record? Or We played uh, cassette tapes, and you remember cassettes? Those yes. are the, we had those in those days. Um, interestingly, when I was with Peter, Paul, and Mary, we had a very terrific uh, sound analysis system that we used. The system consisted of Eclipse Lascala loudspeakers that that they owned and we traveled with. Again, an Altec mixer and, and Altec equalizers. And so once the system was set up, uh, Peter, who was very sound-oriented, would come out to the m- mixing position, and Paul would uh, go on stage and we would bring up the system until the first node of, of feedback would occur. And Paul would then say, because with his perfect pitch, would tell us, what frequency that was, and I would look at my chart and say, ah, that's an that's that's 640 hertz, so I've got an equalizer at 600, I'll take that down a little bit. And we would continue to do that throughout until we got through the five bands of EQ that we normally carried. And that was how we, the system was analyzed in those days. Brilliant. Then Altec came out with acoustic voicing, which was pretty much the same thing with a third octave equalizers. And then John Meyer developed uh, SIM system equalization, which is, uh, you know, real-time tuning. And then uh, Smart uh, is the other basic unit that's used quite a bit. But, uh, yeah, we, uh, we just turned it up, got the notes, turned them and equalized it down that way. I'm jumping around a bit because things are just popping into my head that I want to ask. So uh, apologies for jumping. I'll, I'll try to come up with an answer. <laughs> so when I operated the sound in my school theatre, we used a cassette tape 
and you, you turn the, the cassette tape back a quarter turn when you, you found where you wanted to stop, turned it back a quarter turn and you cued the cassette tape and you put it back in. And obviously these days people are using computer-controlled software to, to fire off sound effects. Yeah. But in those early days, were, were sound effects a big thing? or and Sound effects were really what theatre sound was all about. Uh, mm. I mean, that was, and sound effects were created by the stage manager who either went to a, a place to record, and the early sound effects were done on, on LP, on, on uh, discs, 78 RPM discs that... Uh, you drop the needle on where it was supposed to go, and that was your cue. But later on, reel-to-reel tape, and that you were able to cue up quite directly because you saw where your chalk mark was, and that's that's how it queued up. We tried not to do sound effects on cassette because it really is a, a hit and miss. You're going to get it right at the right time. Mm. Then what happened was four-track or two-track carts came along, and the carts would always have a magnetic stop, and that would be very much easier to uh, control. And then, uh, of course, the computer software devices that now do it all. But it, took, it was a very good mark of a very good sound man that he could cue up his tape very quickly and, and, and hit play. Uh, and I suppose connected to that as well, it's, it's the, the theatre sound got more complex over the years as the technology evolved. At what sort of point did you start... Did, did you ever use automation? And at what point did you start to trust the idea of having a desk do something for you? Well, automation is it was started out by basically being uh, the availability of grouping certain input channels to a, to a VCA so that you could then have one control over a group of microphones that made your operation life easier. That was the original beginning, I think, of, of, of automation in the, in, in the theater. Now you can basically do almost everything, but you still have the operator to have that last control before it goes out to the outer world. But it is certainly a lot easier today uh, mm. to have automation controlling your EQ, your, uh, your grouping, your routing, and, and, and also d- delay on each input channel, things of that sort. Uh, it, uh, it becomes complex, but it certainly gives you an opportunity to be more expressive and technically advanced in what you're thinking of doing. When I first started using automation, I think the... The problem I had was deciding how much to let the desk do and how much to let the user do. But I suppose the point of theatre is that it's trained people who are providing a a similar quality of performance every night. So as long as they're doing their bit, then hopefully you can trust that your settings will be correct. Well, that's it. You know, in in the theatre, your uh, object is to recreate the same performance uh, eight times a week. It's it's not like concerts uh, where you go for a, for a different room, uh, a different arena um, from night to night, or film or recording where you only have to get it right once. Mm. Um, the theater sound is 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 much more uh, fly of the seat of the pants, uh, so to speak. So the automation there is very helpful, and uh, computer. Uh, programmable mixing consoles uh, have become the, the standard, um, especially on Broadway. And one thing I've always been intrigued by is, because I come from a more music and concert background, I've always been intrigued by broadcast and theatre due to the way that they use microphones, either Lavalier or Lapel or headset microphones. The the way that someone says, oh, I'll I'll put a microphone in the hairline, and I think, is that going to pick up enough? How How does that not just end up in squealing feedback? And... Do you have any preferences about miking, cardioids, omni? How, how do you... Well, the, the, the miniature microphones are, of course, mostly all uh, omnidirectional. Um, and for many years, uh, we, you know, clipped them on uh, the front of the costume and went from there. It, it changed when we started to... Uh, we went to put microphones in the hair and the hairline out of necessity in a show called Chicago, uh, Gwen Verdon playing Roxy Hart had a, a very tight costume and there was no place to uh, to really hide the transmitter pack. So she was wearing a wig and so we were able to put the transmitter pack 
underneath her wig, and the microphone stuck out right at the beginning of it. And that was, I think, one of the first instances of, of microphones being up on the head. Les Mis in, in London did it because they had all those medieval costumes that were able to hide microphones very very easily with the hair and the wigs. The advantage of a microphone on the either the hairline or over the ear is the fact that the sound quality is basically the same no matter which way the actor turns. With the mic on the chest, if you turn to the side, it's going to be a different sound than if you're speaking straight ahead. So that was the major reason for the microphones being up there. It was always at a constant distance from the from the mouth. And then as sound got more involved and more complex, it wanted to become more invisible, which was the desire that I've always had was the sound shouldn't be uh, uh, shouldn't be seen. It actually shouldn't be heard. It should just be there. But now, with the higher levels of sound that's necessary and, and some of the rock musicals and some of the larger musicals we're going to, the uh, ear-worn microphones, the headset mics, which are totally visible and now, you know, used in, like, in, like they use in concerts. Again, it's not a, a fault, it's just something that has to be, and, uh, and, and we like that. Another jump question as well that comes to me. I spoke to someone who'd worked with Charlie Watkins, who was the yes. who made the WEM PA columns. Very much in use, and we did we did the Isle of Wight festival with Hendrix on the WEM columns. Uh, well, he was uh, apparently heard to say that he stopped mixing bands when they started wanting monitors on stage because before that. <laughs> Bands would balance themselves on stage. You know, the guitarist wouldn't turn up too loud because he'd, he'd, he'd match the drums and they'd want to hear a bit of the vocal spilling back off the PA and that would be the stage sound. And he said, when people started asking for monitors on stage, he said, then, then my job got so much more difficult, so I stopped mixing bands. And I was just wondering, when you're mixing Hendrix, say, was was it a very loud stage? You know, there were walls of marshals there. Was he trying to annihilate the front row, or was it actually quite quiet? Annihilate himself, actually. Uh, the... It was interesting. He was a, such a he was a master at control of dynamics. So when he was doing his vocal, the instrument level came way down underneath him, and so we were able to get that vocal level up with our six A seven five hundreds multicellular horns and less than a thousand watts of power to drive it. And for monitors, we just had a pair of Altec six hundred four E's on either side of the stage, which gave him back a little of his vocal, so he could feel that. Uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary had speakers on the sides. Uh, none of the, uh, you know, front fill slant wedges that were then uh, that you see now, and in-ear monitors we never heard of. So uh, it, it, w it was a much simpler time. I'm glad I got out of it when I did, because <laughs> I think Charlie is right. Uh, the, the monitors on stage are. Um, uh, very problematic in some instances. It, it's easier now that they have them in their ears, so you don't have that that wall of, uh, of sound messing up the front of house sound. But even on, on the, in the musical theater, monitors are a big thing. They're not wearing ears, but they have monitor speakers hidden all over the stage, mm. so they can one hear the band. It's very difficult to put head-worn microphones uh, into vocal monitors to give them enough level to hear. So normally that's not done, but with the headset microphones now, you can give them uh, their own vocal back. And, and unfortunately, some of the younger performers that are now doing theater were never, never vocally classically trained, so they demand to hear themselves like they do when they're in a studio. And uh, that makes it very difficult for the sound designer, especially for the sound operator. But yeah, uh, I, I agree with Charlie, it was when monitors got to be so bad, uh, it was there. I don't know if you ever had a pair of Watkins loudspeakers, the, his columns, but they were filled with sand, so they weighed, you know, three or four hundred pounds, so it was hard wow. to move them around. But it was that's where they trained the Scotch roadies, because they could pick one up and put it under their arm and carry it off with them. <laughs> And, and then someone goes, why does it cost so much to fly these speakers around the world? Well, there's a lot of sand in there. <laughs> uh, indeed there was. Um, the, the last night at, at, at uh, Isle of Wight, Emerson, Lake and Palmer were the uh, closing act, and uh, CBS was recording the, the event. 
and they had their uh, audience microphones uh, up on either side of the stage. Mm. And at the end of the 1812 overture, which I think was an ELP uh, number, they set off explosions on either side of the stage. And one of the audience microphones was right next to the, the, the smoke pot that went off. And it was so loud, and the audience mics were up so loud that it knocked the monitor speakers off of the shelf in the, in the recording truck outside. <laughs> but those were those are the fun things that happened in, yeah. in, in those days. I suppose I've got a geeky question, which is about the microphones and mic placement that you used in those days for a band. Did you use whatever turned up, or did you have a specific microphone that was the go-to mic that you really wanted to have? With Peter, Paul and Mary, it was uh, very easy. It was three uh, Sennheiser condenser mics, two of them for the vocal and one for the both guitars, and then another microphone on the uh, upright bass. So that was basically it. They they balanced themselves, the three of them, between the two vocal mics, and the center mic on a lower stand moved between the two guitars as they were doing the solo leads. Um, Mamas and Papas were basically four vocal mics, and we used uh, an AKG D202, which were the same microphones we used for the Beatles at Candlestick Park, and Mama Cass was very happy that she had to, she was singing into John Lennon's microphone <laughs> um, when she was on tour. And again, there was a drum overhead and a kick, uh, a mic on John's rhythm guitar, uh, a mic on the lead guitar, and a mic on the bass. And, and they were basically all sure 57s or 58s. Hendrix was all SM58s unless we were doing a recording thing, and then the recording people would put up their mics and I would take a split. But uh, even so, the vocals were always SM58s for Hendrix. I, I was, I've always intrigued, because you look at footage from that time of many acts, and they have the second microphone taped to the first one, and I'm thinking, was that because someone was recording it and they wanted a second? It, it always looks very ungainly, having this second microphone taped. Yes, the mic well, that was, that was out of necessity. There was no such thing as microphone splitters in those days. Oh. And so you couldn't, you had one vocal mic and one mic went into the recording, and that was the way it basically was. So that was the reason for that. Oh. Mic splitters didn't come around until mid-'70s. So when you were setting up a stage and they were recording, it was quite a messy stage then, I take it, because you had... Absolutely. Uh, we only did a few um, recording dates with, with Hendrix. It was uh, the Monterey Pop Festival, then at, in Atlanta and, and Woodstock. I never stayed for Woodstock. I, I was there. He was supposed to perform Saturday night to close the show, and I had to be back in New York on Sunday. Well, of course, things were delayed and delayed and delayed, so he never performed until early Monday morning with half the crowd had already dispersed, and uh, he woke everybody up with his great rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner. But um, that was also being recorded. I think we had one... The Albert Hall with, with Hendrix, there was microphones taped together to, uh, to do that recording. And I suppose, given that the, the controls that were available to you in the early days were so minimal in terms of essentially a, a microphone gain, it was part of the art of your job to turn up and check that the speaker system was set up correctly and that it was going to... Or did you just trust the local promoter to, to provide something and, and you were like, well, that's what it is, we've got to just go with it, we haven't got time. <laughs> No, we when when we were carrying our own equipment, I made sure everything was was basically working as well as it could be, or should have been. Uh, we very very rarely uh, relied on local promoters to present uh, other sound systems, mm. so I not not had that problem. One of the things that we did was that in in a large room, you're not quite sure how to, they were going to give you a feed. Uh, how you were going to feed the existing house sound system. So the writer said that we wanted one dynamic microphone in working condition at the mixed position when we came in to do our fit-up. So once that microphone was there and we knew it was working, I was able to take that and give them a, a you know, mic-level feed from my desks to their house sound system. It meant that we had uh, the ability to uh, feed a house sound system if necessary uh, and didn't have to wait to make sure they checked it. It was supposed to be tested when we got there. And most places in those days were able to give you a dynamic microphone without too much of a problem. 
suppose it's a slightly cheesy question, but do you still enjoy what you do? I mean, you're retired now, but do you still... I don't know if you have this term in the US, but we call it a busman's holiday. So, you know, you're, you're yes. a bus driver and you don't want to go on holiday on the bus. Right. Um, I, I, I enjoy listening to the reaping the rewards of of uh, other people doing the work that I used to do. And that's one of the things I'm actually most proud of is that most of the sound designers working on Broadway in the professional theater uh, at one time or another worked with me or for me. Mm. Uh, so I, uh, as a mentor, that's, I think, the, the, the best achievement of, of, of what I've done. And I'm glad to see that uh, that there are a lot of people, Jonathan Deans, I think, being one of them, I, who was one that put me in yes. contact with you. Yeah. It's interesting trying to track people down to speak to them because by nature, we are a, a backstage industry. We're slightly behind the curtain, as it were. And so it's sometimes quite hard to find a way. But thankfully, I, I, I had a way of getting through to Jonathan and he put me in touch. So I'm very grateful uh -huh. to him for that. Well, you should talk to him actually on for one of these podcasts because he's got tremendous stories and he's very he's he's very erudite and will be able to fill you in on a lot of things, uh, especially his time with the Cirque du Soleil shows. Oh yes. When you came into a, to start working on a new production, did you come in from the very beginning or did you come in once they'd already rehearsed and they say, right, try and get this sound out to the audience? Unfortunately, for the most part, that was where it was in the early days. You never were brought in right at the beginning. Today, it's much different, and the, the sound designer is one of the four design elements in the theater, so the sound designer is usually there at the beginning of the rehearsal period, and that's, I think, vital for getting the show properly set, especially since it is so complex sound-wise today. Mm. Were you able to request that as time went on because people recognized that if you were involved at an earlier point, then the result would be better. Yeah, that, that happened. Well, especially the directors that I used to work with, they were very conscious of sound, so they were very helpful in, in talking management into uh, you know hiring the sound operator, the sound designer, as early as possible. And that was the best way to do it. Yeah. It's good to see that uh, if you walk into a theatre today there's very definite aspects of that performance that can be related back to you and, and your peers at the time feeding back information saying, look, we can make this better, but you've got to listen to us. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a hard thing to get over to management. Um, uh, when I started, uh, you know, what do we need all the sound equipment for? A microphone? It's a microphone that's a stick on the end of a piece of rope. What do you need a $1,000 microphone for? Well, the $40 one is just as good. It was That was the uh, thing we had to overcome in, in, in those early days. Uh, today, the uh, sound systems are almost as expensive as, as any of the other design elements in the theater. I'm going to be tickled for the next week just thinking about actors handing around Neumann microphones and dropping them. <laughs> yes. Well, we were taught our lesson at that point, but it, it, it worked fine. Uh, the other thing, you know, we did in, in, at Superstar was the, the composer wanted it to have almost a recording studio sound, and so they enclosed the orchestra pit in, in the sound baffles between each of the sections of the orchestra, and the uh, conductor uh, stood up in a plastic bubble to conduct and, and cue the stage. Very, that's all well and good, but th you need space around a microphone and an instrument. Uh, when you're in a tight room, there's no air to breathe, and so it sounded very squashed, which is, in fact, it was. So the other thing I did, besides getting rid of the wireless radio microphones, was to take the cover off the top of the pit. And uh, and open the audience, the orchestra up to the to the audience. There are things like that that you have to do that are not really involved in the technical end of sound, but uh, are, are necessary as part of the sound design. There does seem to be a tendency these days for people to very heavily engineer the sound. You know, putting a drummer in a side room, having triggered cymbals, having everyone isolated and hidden away. But I don't know, what, what do you feel about the isolated method? Well, 
part of it's necessary because the set designer has designed this the, the scenery to cover the orchestra pit so there's no room for any musicians to play where they normally would so you're therefore having to find a place to put them and when you do that in an offstage dressing room or in the basement or wherever uh, you do do some kind of acoustical treatment so that's not so self-contained but um, it does give you total control over the sound getting to the audience and in some musicals, that's probably very necessary. It is always better to have the audience hear what's what's actually happening live, but it's not the mandate anymore, and uh, and so you have to do that. So I, I suppose it's that fine line, as you said at the very beginning, is this a live performance that you're witnessing, or is it a recreation of a recording? Yeah. 20 years ago... Um, I went to a conference in California about computers and and sound, and the um, basic demonstration was a percussionist uh, on stage playing a, a set of timpani, a snare, bongos, all sorts of other percussion instruments, and they all had these contact microphones on the on the instrument, so that uh, you didn't see any microphones, but that's how they were amplifying it. Mm-hmm. And what happened during the performance is that a, a stagehand would come out and carry away a, a percussion instrument, but he would still play it because the triggers were there that that, that triggered the offstage uh, instrument to make that sound. Uh, and it happened and went on and on. And finally, uh, all of the instruments were taken off the stage, but the percussionist was there wailing away, and uh, you heard all these sounds being uh, triggered. Finally, the last thing was, was that the stagehand came up and picked up the musician and carried him off the stage and there was no more sound. So you still have to have the human element involved in, in, in this, and I think that's a, a thing to bear in mind to remember for a while, mm. that we're still, you know, you, you need the human interface. Yes, and especially now, it's, it'll date this recording by saying it's, you know, during the time of coronavirus, but, you know, when people are yeah. missing live performance, it's, uh, you know, it's... It, 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 it's quite sad to think that it's, it's been months since I've been able to see or hear something live. I'm, I'm quite yeah. missing it now. Right, we, right, we are. Um, it's always a an uplifting feeling to be able to go to a place of performance and, and see folks doing their thing. Um, we, we do miss that. And that's one of the you know things that's bad in, in New York is that the theatre is quiet, the restaurants are quiet, the people are quiet, and there's the number of people that are put out of work in this regard are uh, uh, immense. And as you're running the the thing in the UK to, to raise funds or to get government backing, doing that here in, 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 the, in the United States as well. Yeah, so we've actually been in contact with some of the New York uh, team, giving them our risk assessments and methodology statements so that mm-hmm. they can do similar things to what we've done to, to make their right. voice heard. So hopefully hopefully they will get heard. Many thanks to Abe for a fascinating run through his life. He has seen the sound industry from its infancy to where we are today, and he's still looking for ways to improve the experience of the audience. Coming up in future episodes, we have Mark Coyle, Oasis's original sound engineer, in his first interview for years. And we also have Shep Lonsdale, who mixed Toto, and also played in the Titanic's house band. Yes, you did hear that right. See you soon. A History of Life Sound is presented by me, Chris Snow, executive producer at Spare Women, and is a bandwidth production. <laughs>